So we are, uh, as Andy said earlier, we're starting a, a value series. And uh, let me just explain what that is before I even tell you what the series actually is, because this is something we do here at Trinity uh, three times a year. We've got a set of values that, that we think reflect God's values, that we think that this is what we want to drive the church. We don't want to be a church controlled by tradition or controlled by preferences. We want to be really driven forward by these 11 values that you can find on our website. And so three times a year, we go to one of the kind of sections. They're in, in three groups. And uh, for those of you that like formations, it's sort of a 3-5-3 three, three formation. So we've got three that relate to loving God. We've got five relating to loving one another. And then three relating to loving our neighbors. And so this time of the year, May, we always do a series that focuses us in on that middle group of loving one another, of kind of doing church life. And so let me just say that if you're here today as a guest, you might think, oh, this is kind of a bit weird because this is like a church talking about itself and, you know, I'm not part of this church and so this is a bit strange. Actually, we're really glad you're here. Uh, there's, there's no sense in which this should be awkward or hopefully it won't be awkward for you at all. In fact, it's almost better in a way because if you're coming to a church and you don't know what's going on in the church, there's the kind of putting our best foot forward version you know, where we kind of focus everything on the guests. And then there's the, we're talking to one another. And you get to see that stuff. You get to see kind of the, the, the real stuff of, of the church community. And so hopefully that will be uh, helpful for all of us. And so the, the value that we're looking at, we're taking one of those five. I think it's number seven out of the 11, just to confuse us with numbers. But it, it says something like this, that we want to be a church. Now, all the values are not saying we are this. They're saying this is what we'd love to be. This is what we're moving towards. And this particular one we're looking at says that we want to be a church equipping one another or equipping everyone to play their part in the church. Now, as soon as I say that, I I feel like I need to overcome an objection. Because when you hear that phrase, equipping every individual to play their part in the church, the danger is that you hear kind of a pressure Oh, this is one of those churches where you're going to twist our arms and you're going to force us to participate in things that we don't like doing and we need people to fill the rotors and we need help here and we need help there. And it can become quite a heavy thing. You know, maybe you've been in a church like that where you get this big recruitment drive, sort of we need helpers and sort of a guilt trip and the burden is on you. And I just want to say right at the start, that's not what we're talking about. You might say, well, actually... I'm new to this church. I'm new to Christianity. I'm new to all of this. I'm not sure what I can do or how I can contribute. You might say, uh, I've not been to church for years and I'm just starting to come back and I'm still finding my feet and I don't really feel like I've got much to offer. Or you might say, I've come from another church and actually, I don't want to get into details, but I was kind of bruised by it, kind of hurt by it. And I I don't feel like I've got the capacity or the strength to, to really offer much or I've just had a baby, or going through a thing at work, or, or whatever it is, there, there are lots of reasons and seasons in life where we just don't feel like we've got anything to offer. And I just want to tell you that's perfectly okay. We want to be a church where it's safe to have nothing to offer, where it's safe to feel like you just need to be loved. You just need to be kind of wrapped up in the community of God's people and cared for. Let me give you an illustration of that. 
a few years ago, 25-ish years ago, I was in secondary school, and we had um, various sports teams, the worst of which was the basketball team. We were shocking. Okay, I feel guilty talking about basketball. I've, we've got some Americans here, and I just feel, oh, this is embarrassing. But I was on the basketball team, and, and it was unbelievably bad. And one day we had a, a practice after school, and I was there in the practice, and we were playing a match, and the, the teacher, the PE teacher, decided that these teams were uneven, and so he joined in. A few minutes later, he was stood about where David is from me, just a few feet away. He had the ball. I was kind of in the middle, and he passed it to somebody over here, and I thought, great, I can intercept the ball. So I put my hand out, and I felt this pain shoot up my arm. And I yelped like a little dog, and I looked at my hand, and my finger was already changing shape and color, and it was throbbing. I said, ah, sir, I've broken my finger. Uh, He was a professional PE teacher, right? So he said, "Uh, Pete, go off to the side and bounce a ball with it. That should loosen it up. And so I took his advice briefly, realized that wasn't helping one little bit, and a little bit later, mum arrived, and we drove off to the hospital, got it x-rayed, and sure enough, I'd broken my finger. Another expert, this time a proper one, a doctor, said, um, you, need to, you need to stop using that finger. And the way to do that is we're going to tape it to the finger next to it. So it's sort of like a splint. And so for the next few weeks, my little finger got a holiday. It did nothing. For the next few weeks, it, it just rested. And I ate food and made sure there was a bit of calcium in my diet and, and, and just did everything to protect that finger. It was great, I would imagine, if, if you're that finger. It was you know, quite re- relaxing once the pain had gone. But actually, as nice as that was, my little finger has been far happier since it's got out of the bandage and it's got back into action. It's designed to, to function. It's designed to do something. And my finger has enjoyed these last 25 years. It's enjoyed sport, throwing and catching and other things. It's enjoyed... Um, Holding my children after they've been born. It's enjoyed holding my wife's hand. My my little fingers had quite the life. And and actually, that season when it was broken, it was important that it was protected and it was cared for. But that's not what it was built for. It was built to participate in the life of this body. And that's exactly the same way it is with the church. That there are seasons where we've got nothing to give. We don't have the strength to offer anything. And we just need to be cared for. We just need to be looked after. We just need to to receive and be nourished. But the goal ultimately is not to just stay there, but to become an active participant. You see, God knows that we're created with a deep inner desire to be contributing, to be part of something, to, to feel like we're making a difference, that, that we're participating, that, that we have a significance. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about. We're going to think about one specific chapter that in, in some ways is the ground zero chapter for this whole subject of equipping and being equipped for participating in the life of the church. And today we're not going to look at the whole chapter, we're going to look at one verse And this one verse is going to introduce us to one aspect of what it is to be equipped for our role in the church. But I want us to see it not as a burden, not as a pressure, not as a guilt trip, not as a negative, but as a privilege. That it's actually something that we're created for or born for as Christians to be part of something where we have a significance and we are part of making the, the, the bigger thing work. 
And so the passage or the verse that we're going to look at today is 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. We've got it on the screen if, you, uh, if that helps. And it says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now you may be thinking, of all the verses in the Bible, you decide to preach on that. <laughs> it's not John 3.16, is it? It doesn't sound like something you'd put on a poster and hold up at the World Cup. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It, it's it almost, it's not even obvious what it's saying. But I want us to zero in and to think about this verse because this verse is really the controlling verse. It's the most significant verse in this entire section. It's only when we understand this verse that the other parts can make sense. And so over the next two weeks, today and then two more Sundays, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to be looking at this passage in life groups. We're going to be discussing it together. And hopefully we'll find that it actually is a really helpful thing for discovering uh, kind of how God has made us to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Notice the middle phrase of this, the manifestation of the Spirit. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? We can make it stand out a little bit on the screen. The manifestation of the Spirit. Notice, first of all, the Spirit is capital S. It's like a name. It's referring to a specific Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, each one distinct, each one equal, and all together one. And it's a little bit mind-bending, isn't it? But that's the God that the Bible reveals to us. God the Father who initiates and starts things and has plans and so on. There's the Son who reflects the Father and reveals the Father and and does all the, if you like, the work of, of redeeming us and saving us. And there's the Spirit who is the one who is passionately concerned about the communication within the Father and Son relationship between God and us, between us and each other. The Spirit is 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 a little bit hard to pin down, if you like, or to picture, but he is a very important part uh, of this verse and of this whole section of Scripture, the manifestation of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. Let's just pause for a second before we make real sense of what that phrase is saying and just imagine a hypothetical person, a friend, a neighbor, someone at work, and let's say that you picture them in your mind, you, you pick someone, someone who uh, has grown up and lived their life, is not part of the church, doesn't really know what goes on in the church, and then they hear about Jesus. Maybe you speak to them, maybe they watch something or read something or, or see something on YouTube, whatever, they, they hear the message of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And, and somehow it, it just clicks, like something happens inside them. They oh, wow, that makes sense. They hear about how God the Father sent His Son into this world to come, not just to come into the world, but ultimately to go to the cross. And He went to the cross deliberately on purpose to die a horrific death, and in so doing, to, to take our place. And this, this person, this friend of yours or mine is, is hearing this, and they suddenly realize, He died for me. 
And in Jesus' death, they see a demonstration of God's love. They see the outworking of God's plan. They see that, that somehow in that moment when Jesus died, that, that takes care of their sin and their lack and their inadequacy and all the, all the things that, that are so empty and broken inside of them. And, and somehow it comes clear. And maybe you have the privilege of being with them in that moment. And, and somewhere between 10 past 9 and quarter past 9, Something happens. They trust in Jesus because that's what the gospel invites us to do, isn't it? Not to do anything or fix anything or turn over a new leaf or anything like that. The gospel says, look, you can't do anything. You're hopeless. You're lost. You've got no way of saving yourself, but God's done it all. Will you trust him? It's a gift he wants to give you. Will you trust him for your salvation? And, and so somewhere in there as you're talking and they're listening, they they trust, and maybe they pray a prayer uh, to, to kind of express that trust. But in that moment, 9, 12 p.m., whatever it is, that heaven will keep the record of the timing. Something happens. They become a follower of Jesus. What actually happens in that moment? There's a whole load of things, aren't there? When somebody believes and trusts in Jesus, a whole load of things happen. There's things that happen in heaven. In God's accounting system, that there's this uh, declaration of a, of a transaction that's taken place where all of the bad things that they've ever said or thought or done or should have done and didn't do or should have said and didn't say, all of the negatives, all of the debits, all of the debts in that column are added up and they're transferred into Jesus' column. In that moment, all of the righteousness of Christ is transferred into their column. And so legally, before God, in that moment, that person goes from being completely, completely bankrupt before God, condemned, judged. Instantly, in a moment, they have the righteousness of Jesus. That's an amazing thing that happens, isn't it? As well as that, there's a declaration, not just that they're justified, that is that they're not condemned but are righteous. There's also the adoption, we thought about that last week, that we're adopted into God's family. That's not just a legal thing that happens in a courtroom, that's a, a relational heart thing that's transformative in that moment. In that moment when your, your friend trusts in Jesus at 9, 12 p.m., whatever it is, in that moment there's a thing that happens inside of them too. The Spirit of God enters in where the Spirit of God wasn't before. He comes in and he brings a new heart and suddenly there's a new appetite, a new desire, a new love for Jesus and a new desire to please him. There's a, there's a change on the inside. And the Spirit of God is now dwelling inside them. They're born again, not just adopted, but also born. They're transformed. There's this whole list of things. We could actually keep going. There's a whole load of things that happen just in that moment when someone trusts Jesus. And as the Spirit of God comes into a person, not only does he come to dwell inside, he also brings a gift. Sort of a housewarming present, I suppose you could say. He brings a gift that he has designed and chosen specifically, I don't like the word, but I'm going to say it, bespoke for you for the person that is trusting in Jesus. This bespoke gift is brought in by the Spirit that wasn't there before, and now it's there. We call it a spiritual gift. Because you see, in the moment when somebody trusts Jesus, not only does a, a legal transaction occur in heaven, not only does a relationship begin with God, they're also 
birthed into the community of God's people. You, you suddenly, whether you realize it or not, and you probably don't when you become a Christian, wow, I'm part of a, a thing that's called the church, the body of Christ. Suddenly we sort of belong to each other and we're, we care for one another and you, you're actually entering into the greatest family, not only vertically but horizontally, that you can ever imagine. And in that process, in that moment, the Spirit of God places a gift inside of a new believer that they may not realize is there for years, but it's there from the start of their new life. It's a gift that says you have a place uh, to belong and a part to play. There's something here that God has put within you that is going to incline you and nudge you and urge you towards a certain type of ministry that is going to be a blessing to the whole community of God's people. I just think that's such a beautiful thought that, you know, one of these children in kids club age five or six can, in just a simple little way, trust Jesus and say, Jesus, forgive me for my sin and be my savior. And in that moment, you know, there's things happening in heaven and things happening in their heart and there's this gift there. They may not realize it for decades yet, but all of that is happening. All the rejoicing in heaven. It's a massive thing when someone trusts Jesus and part of that transformation is a spiritual gift. Now, why am I talking about spiritual gifts? Because that's what this verse is talking about. The manifestation of the Spirit that Paul's describing here is literally talking about the spiritual gifts in action. How do I know that? Well, because in the following verses, he goes on to list them. He goes on to describe and list what those gifts include. It's not a complete list, but it's a list. And so where it says here, the manifestation of the Spirit, uh, it's talking about the local church, and it's talking about each one within the church doing what they can do because God has made them, wired them, gifted them to do this particular thing. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? What that means, a couple of thoughts, what that means is that the church is not necessarily better than social clubs that you might find out there, but it's different. Think about social clubs, uh, I don't know, the Rotary Club or the Caravan Club or the Scout Group or a sports team or the Knitting Circle, whatever you're into, the Tiddlywink Monthly Championship, whatever your thing is, all of these different clubs and societies out there, some of them are probably amazingly organized. Some of them we could learn lessons from in how to to do gatherings of people, maybe. Some of them are maybe absolutely uh, horrific political environments with a really toxic atmosphere. I'm not going to, you know, over-inflate how good they are. But the point is that we're not saying the local church is better than all those social clubs. But this verse is saying that the local church is different from all those social clubs. And what makes us unique is not better organization, it's not better people, it's not nicer plans or or greater charity giving or anything like that. What makes the church unique is the manifestation of the Spirit. Because that's not true of a social club. It's only true of the church. The word Spirit, we just need to dwell on that for, for a little bit longer because we come to church from our culture with all sorts of baggage One of the bits of baggage that I think probably all of us bring is a misunderstanding of what spirit or spiritual means. 
In our culture, especially since probably the 60s, spiritual has been very uh, a concept that's been very influenced from Eastern New Age kind of ideas, Eastern religions. It's sort of become this fashionable thing, like it's a, a quality that somebody has. To be spiritual is to be not just caught up in the normal things of you know work and the boring stuff. It's, it's sort of a, a sensitivity to the other realm. It's, 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 a, it's a depth, a profoundness about somebody. If someone says they're spiritual, we tend to think, whoa, you know, like there's something there. They're, they're a seeker. They're interested. They're religious in some way. And we have this kind of vague concept that spirituality is a quality that some people have more of than others. The Bible doesn't see it that way at all. Spirituality, according to the Bible, Christian spirituality is actually quite simple. You either have the Spirit or you do not. It's about the Spirit, capital S. It's not about sensitivity. It's not about religiousness. And, and the Bible is, is clear. You either have the Holy Spirit because you belong to Jesus or you don't belong to Jesus and you don't have the Spirit. John chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is educated. He's influential, he's powerful, he's religious. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got nothing. You've got to go to zero. You've got to be born from the Spirit, born of the Spirit, before we can even start to talk about spiritual things. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit, that person does not belong to Jesus. And so when we think spirit and spirituality, let's not bring with us a kind of vague quality sort of, you know, whoa, sense of spirituality. Let's bring with us a biblical sense that actually, if we belong to Jesus, we are spiritual beings. And if we don't, we're not. It's that simple. And so this, the manifestation of the Spirit, is not that we're a social club that are particularly attuned to spiritual matters. No, it's that we are uniquely the people of the Spirit of God. And no other social club can be that. No other gathering of people. There may be Christians in those places, therefore the Spirit of God is active in those places, but they're not the same as this a people that are defined and brought together and united by the presence of the Spirit at work in people's lives. The NLT is a version of the a translation of the Bible that some of you use, and, and it's a, a, a version that kind of, where something's a little bit, little bit ambiguous, it makes it clear. Okay, so it, it has some real strength. So if you look at the NLT version of this verse, it just makes it clear what this is about. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. That's exactly what the verse is saying. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. But let's go back to the version that we've got because even though it's slightly more difficult to understand, I, I want us to stay with this because the manifestation of the Spirit actually is saying a little bit more than just we have a spiritual gift. What it's saying is that something's happening Something is going on in the local church. And 
the thing that excites me about this is that we can so easily get kind of complacent and we can ignore it or miss it or not be aware of it and think, well, this is just normal. We're just a social club. We're just a gathering of people. You know, Tim's good at this and Becky's good at that. And, you know, Yvette can do this. And we're thankful for Vicky because she can do that. And we can treat it as being a very sort of human thing when actually what's going on is remarkably spiritual. These spiritual gifts manifesting within the community of God's people mean that there is something that's true of the church that will never be true of any other gathering of people. There's a quality there that is not just a a greater quality that's lesser there in other places. It's a quality that is completely missing in other settings. The manifestation of the Spirit What it's saying in this verse and in this passage is that the Spirit of God has purposely designed and chosen a gift for you, whether you know what it is or not. If you belong to Jesus, you are gifted, and your gift is needed. That you're, You're a part of the community of God's people, and your contribution makes a difference. Now, just to kind of reinforce what we're saying, let's look at the other elements of this verse. I think there's a slide that kind of moves them out a little bit. And uh, there we go. <clears throat> the what of this verse is the manifestation of the Spirit. But who? Who gets the spiritual gifts? Notice what he says there. It's to each. To each one. It's not leaders. It's not upfront types. It's not uh, seminary educated types. That there's no qualification, it's to each one. I think that's really important. Because it's so easy, isn't it, in a church to think, oh, we're so thankful for our church because, I mean, Andy is so gifted and Dave is so gifted. But Andy and Dave cannot run this church. They cannot make it work. They're just two out of 50, 60, 70 people. And we need all of them. Because every one of us is gifted. Every one of us that belongs to Jesus has a special gift that the rest of the community needs. So it's not just leaders, it's not just certain types, it's not just the people up front, it's everyone, and that means you. You might be thinking, well, actually, I I just don't feel like I've got anything to offer. If you belong to Jesus, you have, even if you don't know what it is yet. And that's an amazing thing. There's a significance, there's a role, there's a, a part you have to play that means that this church is not the same without you. Who gets the spiritual gifts? To each. How? How do we get these spiritual gifts? Notice what he says. Is given. That's in contrast to is earned. We don't earn a spiritual gift. We don't uh, qualify for a spiritual gift. We don't have to put in a certain amount of time or achieve a certain level of maturity or get a certain amount of training. It's something that's given to us, undeserving, just from the beginning. And in God's amazing way, he knows when a five-year-old or when a 10-year-old or when a 78-year-old trusts in Jesus, he knows exactly the spiritual gift to give that will give them the opportunity to contribute and to have that sense of significance. It's a gift. It's not earned. And so let's get rid of all ideas of I'm not good enough yet or I haven't achieved that yet because that's just a different issue altogether. Part of our salvation is that we are given a gift. God's grace is given to us 
for particular function in the church, particular work that we might do. Who gets it? Each one. How do we get it? It's given. And the bottom question here, the bottom part of the verse, why? why? Why would God give us, why would God give you a spiritual gift? It's for the common good. What that means is that, that a spiritual gift is never for your own benefit. It's never to feed yourself and strengthen yourself and help yourself to be a better you. It's never for you. It's always for everybody else, which I think is such an incredibly godly thing. Because what's God like? The Father is always pointing us to the Son. The Son is always obeying and pleasing the Father. The Spirit's always pointing us to Jesus. God is selfless. He's a giver. He points and glorifies and, and, and does things for others rather than pulling everything toward himself. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that when he gives a gift, he gives the gift so that we can give it away, so that we can be a blessing to others. I just think that's such a, such a God thing. You know, it's, it's clearly by design. So the spiritual gifts that we're given are for the community. They're for each other. Now, what is the kind of practical outworking of this message and, and this series as we move forward? I'll mention a, a specific practical thing at the end of the message, but, but really what I want us to, to kind of take from this as we move into this three weeks of Sundays, three weeks of life groups, I'd love for us to be, first of all, excited. Excited that God has gifted every one of us and excited to try to discover what that might look like or what that might mean for us. I'm sure that for many of us in the room, we're, we're not sure what our gifting is. Well, we hope that this can be a time over the next weeks and maybe ongoing months and years where we can explore and discover and then find the satisfaction of using those gifts. The Bible talks not about earning a spiritual gift, but about having received it, fanning it into flame. And so something that's so tiny and latent within us can be fanned into flame so that it can become all that it was intended to be. That's what we want to be as a community, a community of people who are serving God in a way that is just a delight to us because we're right where we belong, where we're doing something that just makes a difference and where other people are benefiting from it. How do we discover our, our spiritual gift? It may be that you've been a Christian for decades and you still aren't sure and you're not clear. Well, we're going to talk about that more in, in the next couple of weeks, but but what I would suggest is that the most important thing, just as the gifts are given for the sake of the community, for the common good, for the benefit of others, that's why I think that the best way to figure out what our gifts are is in the context of the community. This isn't a call to rush home, lock the door, and be on your own, kind of begging God to show you what gift he's given you. I think it's much better to spend time with each other, prayerfully, but time with each other and listen to one another. To, to do the thing that is incredibly un-English and actually speak to one another in a way that's gracious and encouraging and vulnerable and real. We're the world's leading experts in talking about the weather. But, but, but how much better is it when we get together and we say, hey, I, I don't really know how to say this, but when you do this, the church is really built up and I'm really blessed and I'm embarrassed that I said it. And you know what? You feel all awkward, and, and that person is just like, wow. 
could be the most significant thing that anyone said to them in 10 years. I want that to be happening in this church. I want us to, in the context of life groups, in the context of friendships, in the context of marriages, to affirm one another. Don't go around telling each other what your, their gift isn't. All right, that's, that's not really your job. We'll, we'll figure that one out if someone gets too carried away in an area where they probably shouldn't be. But, but that's not your problem. Your, your, your opportunity is to say, you know what? Lord, I want to bless this person. I want to encourage this person. I'm going to encourage this person. Help me to spot things. You don't have to know the right labels. You don't have to know specifically. You don't have to even be thoroughly confident of it. But anything you recognize in each other, let's affirm it. And in the process of that conversation and in the process of doing church together, over the next days and weeks and months and years, wouldn't it be great for all of us to have a greater sense, not of arrogant pride, I'm gifted. That's bizarre. Why would you be proud that you're gifted? We all are. But, but just a greater humble confidence that, yeah, this is the way God's wired me, and I'm going to put my energies into this. I'm going to see how I can contribute to this aspect of church life. It's amazing, you know, when you're aware of the gifting that God's given you, you can give and give and give in a way that just doesn't drain you. I was talking last night with someone about the fact that, uh, you know, people say, oh, you're going to such and such a place and you're speaking this many times. Oh, you must get so tired. Oh, not really. I don't mind teaching all day long. Doesn't, you know, I'm quite happy to. I could preach now till seven o'clock, no problem, you know. That doesn't drain me. But you ask me to do a kid's talk. Oh, five minutes and I'm ready to lay down for a week. I can talk to my own kids. I'm a, you know, I don't mind being a dad, but I'm not really wired for kids' talks in church. They're the hardest thing in the world for me. Evangelistic conversations, I should do them, I should have them, I want to have them, but I find them difficult. Why? Because it's not my gifting. It's maybe my responsibility, but it's not my gifting. And so that's the beauty of it. When you discover the way that God's wired you and gifted you, you discover that you can serve in a way that you've never done before. It takes time. It may take some development and fanning into flame and being mentored and so on. It's a relational thing, but actually it's a real thrill. It's a privilege to actually feel like I'm here for a purpose. One final thought. You know those night vision goggles that the military use? Maybe you've seen them on, on films or something where they, everything's kind of green, but at least they can see what's there. You know, it's sort of like uh, secret access to something that's invisible to the human eye. I'd love to have kind of God goggles. Now, there's other religions that actually believe in such things. I'm not saying that. But I'd love to have some kind of God goggle that enables me to see the church the way God sees it. It talks in Ephesians about the church, and it talks about the multicolored, glorious reality, like it refracts the glory of God into all this manifest beauty. And, it, and you get, really, the church? Are you kidding me? You've seen one of these things? And from God's perspective, the church is just this incredibly glorious gathering of very needy people with all sorts of issues and, you know, having a time out because I'm a broken finger. But, but, but God, from his perspective, when he looks at the church, when the angels look at the church, they're blown away by it. 
And if we could have those God goggles to see the beauty of this thing that is the body of Christ in this world, trophies of grace, trophies of God's goodness. Hey, see this person? This is what they used to be like, but look at what I've done in them. And look at this person. Oh, wow, look at this, and look at this, and look at this, and look at this. And it's all across the world. And if we had God goggles and we could see the church for even a a millisecond, we would just, whoa, we would fall flat on our faces thinking that's the most incredibly beautiful thing I've ever seen. We might even say, oh Lord, I'd love to be able to be around that. I'd love to be able to to have some, you know, if I could sneak in at the back and just, no offense if you're sat at the back, but if I could just sneak in at the back and just kind of sit in the corner and just experience, wow, that would be amazing. But actually God would say, you know what? That marvelous, beautiful, majestic, impressive thing that is the church, that includes you. And you're part of that. You're part of the, 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 the mechanism that's reflecting and, and refracting the beauty of the glory of God in a way that only the angels can really see, but it, it's, it's impressive. And we have a tendency to think, oh, I'd love to be just on the corner or on the edge of something. And actually God says, I've got a bigger role than that. I need you right in the middle. Oh, but I've got very little to offer. I'm not like him and I'm not like her. No, but your part is critical. We're going to be thinking about that over the next couple of weeks, how every part is critical and how the body of Christ, the the community of God's people is actually such a glorious and a beautiful thing. Sometimes it takes an outsider to see it. Sometimes it takes an outsider to say, I've not witnessed this anywhere in the world. There's something special here. And we go, where? I can't see it. But it's there. And it's because the Spirit is being manifested through us. It's because the spiritual gifts that we've been given are in action as we love and care for one another. And so that's our goal. That's our agenda for these next couple of weeks to, to kind of open our hearts to the exciting reality that we are, if we are Christ's, we have a spiritual gift. Now let's look together to try and figure out what they are and encourage one another. Not pressure, not guilt trip, not burden, encourage. And in conversation, in life groups and after church and when you meet up during the week, let's try to figure out ways to encourage the things we see in each other. Let's build one another up. Let's be a community that in a very un-British way speaks lovingly to one another so that we feel edified and built up through that. That's the prayer. That's the goal. That's the challenge or the dare. Are you in? I think we should. Let's go for it. So life groups this week, please be there if you can. Next Sunday, be here if you can. Bible, read 1 Corinthians 12. Read around it. See what's going on. In your prayer time, talk to God about it. Most of all, in conversation, let's encourage each other. Let's tell people what we see in them that seems to be from God. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to transition to a time of communion. Father, when we stop and think about all that takes place at 12 minutes past nine when someone trusts in in Jesus for salvation, it's just mind-blowing. It's amazing. And Lord, we thank you for each one of us that 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 is true of already. I pray for any here that are, uh, are not there, that are looking in a little bit from the outside and are not already... Uh, trusting and accepting the the gift of life that you give. Lord, I pray that you would pursue them and 
uh, and make it so that they just realize how significant that is. But Lord, for those of us that belong to you, those of us that are yours, thank you that you know all our weakness, all our struggles, all our inadequacies, all our brokenness. You know all of that. You're incredibly sympathetic to who we are and what we're going through. But Lord, we just want to say thank you that by your spirit, you have gifted each one of us. And Lord, we want to be good stewards of that. As a community of your people, we want to affirm and encourage and help one another to discover all that you've made us to be, all that you're calling us to do. And Lord, we pray that we would never be a a burden and duty and an arm-twisting kind of environment, but let there be an energy and a liveliness that comes because we're relationally chasing these things together. Lord, as we move into a time of communion, we pray that that this simple reminder of, of the hinge of history and of the foundation of our faith, Lord, we pray that this little thing that we do would really stir our hearts to worship you afresh today. And then, Lord, we pray that we would sing from our hearts in response to you. And then as we move on into conversations afterwards, let that be maybe the most significant ministry that happens today as we speak to one another. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. And thank you, Father, for one another. You blessed us in so many ways, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.